Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime and sometimes also the very best looking. If you guys only knew the number of tweets and emails I was getting because of both Dave Ehrenberg and the lore, you know, but I'd have to say it was uh, a little more heavily weighted in favor of Peter, who's wearing that hat on backwards. Sorry about that, Dave. Um, <laughs> you know, Dave, Richard, and I, we were once the young guys. I was just talking about this with Carm. We were once the young, handsome men, and now the next generation, the Peter Tragoses of the world, come up. And the amount of tweets that I got today and over the weekend was unreal. And that is partly because Peter also has a massive YouTube following. So uh, thank you all for being here. Welcome, as I said, to another episode. We're diving back into the Dan Markell murder case. He is the Harvard-educated FSU law professor gunned down in his Tallahassee driveway back in 2014. Two hitmen and a go-between uh, convicted, as well as the ex-brother-in-law, Charlie Adelson, and mom, Don, Don Adelson, is sitting in a Leon County jail in Tallahassee as we speak. So uh, the question must be asked, what does Wendy, the ex-wife, what does her and her dad Harvey's future look like? We're going to get into all that. Timothy Jansen, he had to catch a flight. Uh, he was with uh, Nancy Grace all day, so he apologizes. And John Singer had a last-second emergency, but we got you the Florida State Attorney and probably one of the best-known jury consultants in the country. Uh, Dave Ehrenberg is the State Attorney for Palm Beach County. He's also a former member of the Florida Senate. He was elected to the Senate in 2002 as its youngest member. He served for eight years. He's a graduate of two schools, the same one that you probably heard of. It's called Harvard, undergrad and Harvard Law School. And uh, he was a friend of Dan's up in Tallahassee. Peter Tragos, otherwise known as the lawyer you know, the man with the golden locks. He is a managing partner of the law offices of Tragos, Sartis, and Tragos in Clearwater, Florida. He focuses his entire practice on fighting for injured victims of wrongful death, car accident, and premises liability cases. As far back as law school, Mr. Tragos was drawn to perfecting the craft of trial work. He won a national championship, not in football, but on the mock trial team at FSU, even bigger than football, at the <laughs> FSU College of Law. And uh, he's expanded his research and education by reviewing and breaking down other trials on his YouTube channel, The Lawyer You Know. Check it out. You've probably already seen it. Last but not least, since 1985, Richard Gabriel has been a leader in the field of jury research, jury selection and litigation and uh, communication with experience in more than 1,500 trials. Some of the names he's handled, Aaron Hernandez, Casey Anthony, O.J. Simpson, Phil Spector, Enron, remember that shady company, uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, the former Detroit mayor, Heidi Fleiss, the list goes on and on. He's also the author of Acquittal, an insider reveals the stories and strategies behind today's most infamous verdicts. There you go. Uh, please support us on Patreon and or YouTube. If you can't do that, we'd really appreciate five stars. Audio goes a very long way for us. A quick reminder, December 20th, you're looking at this right here. 
perspectives on trial life. Ruth Markell is going to be headlining this in person in Sunrise in South Florida. Dennis Murphy from Dateline, and you know the other guy, Dave Arenberg, and myself, we're going to be uh, hosting this. Please come on by. You can get tickets. All the information is on here, and I'll post it once again. Uh, the lawyer you know, Peter. Um, Dan Markell was your professor. Tell me the first time you met him. What was your uh, initial impression? So, you know, since this all happened, um, a lot of people have asked me that. He was not one of the professors I was incredibly close to. Um, I took his class and listened to some of his seminars on different things in criminal law is, was his specialty as far as I was concerned with what um, I learned from him. He was definitely one of the brainy professors, incredibly smart, um, incredibly well-spoken as well. There were a few professors like Earhart on evidence was one of my professors as well, literally wrote the book in Florida um, on evidence. And he would help me through my mock trial packets and my moot court packets. So that was really cool. Um, but Dan Markell was one of those guys that um, stuck to the book. He was the type of guy that you wanted to be writing the textbooks that we were learning from and teaching us about those textbooks. He was that kind of guy, uh, smartest guy in the room as far as I was concerned. And I was in a lot of those rooms. Um, really nice guy, but he was he was a high level guy for sure. Was he intimidating in that sense where you, you felt, you know, nervous or hesitant to ask him a question because you felt he was too smart? <laughs> No, I don't, I don't feel like he was intimidating in that sense. It was almost like the way I handled law school is any professor that would allow us with the open door pro, uh, policy to talk to them, um, I would, and I took advantage of that as much as possible. Um, I was a research assistant for my torts professor while I was there too, and his door was open. Dan Markell would always you know, let us come in there and talk through stuff. My dad's a criminal defense attorney, so I kind of grew up on the in the criminal law. He was an assistant U.S. attorney, assistant state attorney, kind of both sides, so it was cool. And I, I would talk to a lot of my crim law professors just because my experience was in that. And my dad um, sponsored the book award in the crim law class and stuff. Not that I ever won it, but uh, he <laughs> sponsored it. So it was, it was cool. He was a, he was a, a cool guy. And uh, Dave, I know you've talked about it before, but uh, you know, what are your fondest memories of Dan? You guys met cause you were, you happened to be up in Tallahassee and members of the Harvard club. Was he really active in that club? And how often would you see him? Well, he was active, but, you know, he was also on the town. I mean, I don't know how he had the time to socialize when he had a full plate of teaching and he was writing and he was traveling. But you'd see him around and Dan uh, and I became friends. And, you know, I uh, I could sense there were some issues in, in the marriage. I mean, when uh, you go to his Facebook profile page, it was just him and his kids. There was no uh, picture of Wendy. Uh, towards the end. And, you know, he, uh, but he was a great guy. And Peter's right that despite the fact he was very smart, very intellectual, loved to discuss high level criminal justice topics, he was also down to earth, very accessible, had a, a, a warm smile, and someone who liked to, you know, have fun and, and gig you a little bit, you know, needle you a little bit. So there was no uh, sense of like unapproachability. He was one of the guys. Aaron Berg, let me put you on the spot. Who has a higher IQ, you or Markel? Markel. <laughs> he was in academia. I was in the state senate. That automatically takes down your IQ several. <laughs> <laughs> there might be there might be some truth to that. Um, so, Richard, you're you know you're really an expert on on jury selection and and trials to some extent. People have asked me, you know, this arrest of Don Adelson came exactly one week 
after Charlie's conviction. Phones have been seized. Um, do you get the sense uh, at all that this that it's being hurried at all with Donna, that things are moving along much quicker than anticipated? And if so, would that be unusual? I, I don't think so. I mean, listen, this this trial has all these trials have had a pretty significant history. There's a massive amount of investigation that has gone into all this. I think Donna has probably always been on the list. It's just a matter of they were looking at the connection there. You know, let's face it, you know, these guys can tell you this too. You look for what trials you can win. And I think once you get a conviction, that gives you more confidence that a jury is going to buy this. And because essentially Donna's going to be facing some of the same problems that they are going to do. And depending upon what they've seized in terms of voicemail, if they can make that connection, if they really feel like they can connect those dots, I think they have confidence they can go to a jury with this. Hmm. Uh, look at this. Courtney says, wow, I had no idea you had a connection to Dan Markell, Peter. Uh, yes, he does. Peter, how did you... Um how did you get cracking with the lawyer you know? When did you get the idea? When did you start it? What was the impetus? So it was during COVID. I never really watched YouTube before. And during COVID, I started watching some golf YouTubers because live sports were gone. And that's basically the only thing I watch on TV. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder how it would work here. And all of our events of networking and things like that kind of went away. So to connect with people, to be able to talk to them and to try and you know what you know jury consultants are so good at is trying to understand what lay people think around the world about these things and talk about them online and kind of um, use it as our own little or big focus groups and understanding what they think about paid experts and aggressive attorneys and long opening statements, short opening statements. So I could learn a lot from them and I would also try to explain the process and try to help create more fair and unbiased attorneys. I, I mean, uh, jurors. As they walk in, I've had a ton of people message me. I'm at jury selection today and I'm going to remember what we talked about. And I was on this jury and I went in there and tried to listen to everything, keep everything else out. And so that's been cool to, to be a part of. It's kind of the two-way education. We're all learning from each other on how to make the criminal and civil justice system better in our country. Well put. Um, Judy Todd has an interesting comment here, Dave. Uh, this is coming up in part because my friend Dr. G explains is an awesome psychologist did a breakdown of one of Wendy's police interrogations recently. Wendy asked in the first couple of seconds, even if not minutes of this um, interrogation, if she, if she uses the word suspect. So Judy's comment here, Wendy wondered if she was a suspect, how did she know a crime had been committed? Uh, she could have been taken to identify someone or to be with a friend who was struggling. Apparently, according to all reports, she was not informed that the murder had taken place yet, that there was any sort of crime. She was just being brought in for some questioning, but she used the word suspect. Um, how, how important or not important is that 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 comes up in this? We, we, I mean, it's it, it could have been, you know, brought into evidence in earlier trials, but it's kind of being pointed out now for some reason. What do you make of it, if anything? That's, you know, that's that's news to me. Uh, Joel, I've been following this case, I thought, pretty closely. And I guess I had always thought that Wendy was told that there was a murder. She knew that her ex-husband was murdered when she was brought in for that questioning. She went in there without a lawyer and she answered all their questions. She took pictures. She even ratted out her brother, which made me think at the time that she had nothing to hide. She was not part of this. Of course, since then, I've learned a lot more and I uh, think differently, but I, I'd love to just 
lock that down. Is it true that she did not know that she was being brought in to discuss Dan Markell's murder until, what, later in the interview? That's what we're told. Uh, if anyone, STS Nation, I always say best guess, better community. So if anyone has the um, accurate 411 on that with receipts, let us know. But that is the word on the street. Um, please let us know if you know otherwise. Uh, Sarah Fernley here, question for Richard. Uh, Richard, what's your take on the alternate juror kerfuffle during Charlie's trial and the claim that two-thirds of the alternates said that they would have gone not guilty on Charlie? So, Richard, you know, after uh, the conviction, we find out that two of three of the alternates were apparently going to vote not guilty, and one of them tried to make some kind of hubbub, if you will, about um, some some witness tampering where the jurors were speaking to each other, which we know is allowed in a chat. But what do you make of that? Because you saw that already in the Alec Murdoch trial. Because of the uh, pervasiveness of social media and technology, are we going to start to see people crying foul like this more often? I, I think so. I mean, the truth is that there's always, I mean, somebody afterwards, one of those jurors could have said, look, I'm, I'm being not guilty and I'm going to stick that way. All through and they could have hung the jury. That that is a possibility. It's one of the reasons that in jury selection, you really pay attention to who's on your panel, what their personalities are, who are the leaders, who are going to be those lone wolves that may hang that jury and try to keep them out. And e there may even be a strategy about, look, I've got only certain certain number of strikes, so I'm going to configure this in terms of my my chess strategy that I want to keep my alternates. If anything, I'm going to hope that I don't have to use my alternates because I'm concerned about this one person that's in there. That being said, sometimes even the alternates, even though they kind of say, I didn't get to deliberate, when they get in the deliberation room and they're actually talking with other jurors, they can sometimes be brought along. So that's a person who has said, I would have voted not guilty, but they didn't have a chance to deliberate. So I think you have to take a lot of this with a grain of salt. But I think there's always a little bit of after the fact uh, quarterbacking to kind of understand I would have done this. I wouldn't have done this. Even jurors who vote guilty sometimes have second thoughts or regrets about their uh, about their verdict sometimes. Uh, by the way, we had a, a lot of shuffling last minute. So Richard was kind enough to jump in along with Dave Arenberg, who is no small fish. Neither is Richard, but uh, Richard's going to have to jump in about. 15, 20 minutes, and we'll have Dave for as long as you can stay, and Peter, and we will uh, get the most out of the lawyer you know in that time. Um, Solicitor Randolph, one of our favorite trolls. I'm back from the dead. My boy, Alec Murdoch, is doing well. Good to see you, Solicitor Randolph. It has been a while. Some interesting characters on YouTube, uh, Peter, that is for sure. Uh, so there was, uh, since last time we talked, there was a... Um, there was an article, uh, Dave Arenberg, this is right in your wheelhouse, your hometown, the Miami Herald, um, just about nine and a half years late on the story. But uh, they did write a story <laughs> about the Adelson family. And Julie K. Brown is actually an amazing writer uh, and journalist, and she wrote the piece. So I'm not trying to bust you know what. But uh, the, the article was titled, From Mom of a Five-Star Family to Murder for Hire Charge. Donna Adelson's Dark Fall. That is the title of the article. And this is, oh, by the way, Sandy D, super sticker, crossing off my bucket list, all my favorites together, chatting about my favorite case. Thank you. Now all that's left is Peter's rendition of the Grease song. 
best guess, better community, subscribe and like. We'll, we'll get, I guess we'll get them to do that. Uh, this is, uh, this is the, the picture, the Adelsons during a happier time uh, from the Miami Herald. But in this story, Dave Ehrenberg, there is a uh, gynecologist named Dr. Ben Graber who claims to have been friends with the Adelsons from 40 years ago, but not really in touch with them. And he comes out and describes Charlie Adelson as someone um, as being a risk taker, a middle child. He has delusions of grandeur. In his mind, he wants to be James Bond, but he is a periodontist. That's kind of a funny quote because that's uh, two different worlds. But uh, what's interesting here is this same guy, Dr. Ben Graber, also wrote an op-ed in the Tallahassee Democrat. He's literally the only person who has been vocal in favor of the Adelson's innocence. What do you make of this, uh, Dave? Joel, I uh, know Ben Graber not not well. I had met him in the past. He is a former Florida legislator uh, oh, okay. years ago. Yes. Yes. And then he tried to make a comeback and run for Congress, and, and that was uh, short-circuited. Um, just as a quick aside, I'm seeing all these great comments down there, um, all these fans of Peter's. I mean, maybe people can give Rich and me some love, right? They love Peter. I, I, would, like <laughs> to thank Mar- I would like to thank Maria. She did include me in, the, in her love for Peter. Oh, there so, you go. Yeah. Hey, trust me. Trust me, Dave. You guys all have people out there loving. Show the love for Dave and Richard as well, please. Thank you. Thank you. Man, <laughs> it's good to be all of you, Peter. This is going to get, get the get the rub here. Um, so, so here's the thing. That article written by Ben Graber, which was quoted extensively by Julie Brown's Miami Herald article, I think was full of garbage. And number one, he hmm. made it seem like I know this family so well, and there's no way she did this. They aren't innocent. They're all innocent. Well, number one, he hadn't seen this family in 25 years. So I, I don't know if he was being paid by them. I don't know. But I do know that in his op-ed, he pretty he adopted the defense that Charlie did, that it was an extortion. And uh, he came up with all these crazy things that he, he added to the extortion, which the jury had already uh, discarded, by the way, unanimously and quickly. But he also said that this was a love triangle. And so you had Garcia murdered Danny to frame Charlie because he wanted Katie for himself. Do you know how preposterous this is? You remember that there was no arrest in this case until years later. So if Garcia was trying to frame Charlie, he did a really lousy job of it. It's not like he left a bloody uh, glove at his house or he left a gun there. He did nothing to frame him. Plus, if he... Uh, if Charlie were ever arrested for the crime, so would Garcia. So it makes no sense. And and so I read what Graber wrote, and I tossed it in the trash, and I was disappointed to see that the Miami Herald actually quoted extensively as if it was a legitimate theory uh, propagated by a person who was close to the family. Yeah, I was going to save this for a little later, but Dave kind of brought it up, and we'll, we'll weave went in and out of this Miami Herald article. But uh, Peter, to you... When you were, uh, yeah, I assume, keeping tabs on this trial, even though you have a, a real day job, unlike myself, um, you'll get there one day. You'll be in semi-retirement like me one of these days. Um, barely able to take care of my family. But anyway, Peter, <laughs> um, what do you make of this double extortion plot? I mean, were you dismayed by that? Because that seemed, as Dave just said, to be quite the stretch. Yeah, so I, I don't think I was dismayed by it. Uh, criminal defense attorneys 
have to come up with a strategy and angle that works with the evidence they know is going to come out. If they can pick apart the evidence or pick apart the investigation, poke holes in the case because the burden is so high, um, sometimes that can be a strategy. But I mean, to me, this is a testament to law enforcement's work on the case that the investigation was pretty well put together and they couldn't say that camera is not showing the right Prius or you got the wrong guys because the weapon doesn't match the bullet. There's no ballistics issues. There were no real interrogation issues. So, I mean, when they look at the evidence and they say, man, there's not a lot for us to pick apart here, we've got to give a different explanation of the evidence that exists. And if they can agree with the state sometimes, and it's worked for me on the civil side a few times where the defense is not picking up what we're putting down as the plaintiff's attorneys, and they're trying to argue, oh, this was already there, this was already there, and we're arguing an exacerbation of a previous injury, and it just kind of misses with them, and they don't pick apart any of the evidence the right way at all. So it seems like that's what they were trying to do here is take all the state's evidence and say, yeah, but it's actually good for us. And guess what? They don't even know what we're going to argue. They don't know about this. We're going to tell you the truth today for the very first time. And I do think it backfired a little with Wendy on the stand when the prosecution was able to say, had you ever heard of this before? So this is the first time you're hearing about it too. Well, guess what? Us too. And everyone else too. How convenient it comes out during Charlie's trial for the first time. So I think they tried to work with what they had. Um, and I think as far as trying to connect the dots, they did the best they could. And the jury just didn't buy it at the end. Yeah. What about, um, because other people have kind of, uh, formulated a different theory that they should have gone with, which was um, Charlie did hire them and they went up there just to, you know, bang them up a little bit to, to bruise Dan Markell and they got carried away and killed him. Would that, would they have been better off with that kind of a defense? Well, I think it's a similar defense, right? Because he continued to pay him. So after they didn't do what he wanted them to do, it's still some extortion. He still had to pay mm -hmm. them. So the jury would have had to still buy part of that story. But now there's probably still some criminal activity there if you're hiring somebody and paying them to go rough somebody up and it ends in a murder because that would be felony murder. Um, so they could have just charged something different, lesser included. There are ways where that really gets you in trouble and you don't get out scot-free, which I think was their goal at the end of the day with this defense. And I will just throw this out there with Dave. One of my favorite people from law school, um, one of my best friends from law school, worked for Dave for a few years named Jason McIntosh. I don't know if you remember him. He was a line assistant for you at the state attorney's office. He's now a plaintiff's PI lawyer um, in Palm Beach County at Lytle Rider. And, uh, but he worked for you for a few years right out of law school. Uh, by the way, I, I remember Jason well. Jason is now not only a PI lawyer at a very big, prominent firm, but he does their commercials for him. So he's in like the Peter <laughs> Rarified Air Mode. Like he's become like a local celebrity. I call um, him the mayor of Palm Beach because everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. Anytime I'm in Palm Beach, he's like, hey, let me introduce you to this guy. Let me introduce you to this guy. He knows everybody. Right. We'll have we'll have to go out to lunch with him and Aaronberg. We'll literally know every single person. What do you say about Aaronberg as a boss is what I want to know. I, I haven't I haven't talked to him about it. I just I just knew he worked there and I knew that he is the state attorney. So I just figured I'd throw it out there. I, I never asked him about it, if I'm being honest. But I will say. They get trained up well, trying cases, and Jason always did want to be on the plaintiff's PI side, so it was it was good trial training for him there for sure. Well, make sure you ask him, and then we'll make Dave. I pay will. For lunch oh, I will now for there. sure. <laughs> uh, Mr. Mitarochi, we got a question a little bit out of left field, but we've got just the right guy for this. Does a potential juror have to reveal past law enforcement experience if they are not directly asked during voir dire, Richard Gabriel? Um, not, they don't have to volunteer it, but if they are asked either in a questionnaire or in voir dire about past law enforcement experience, 
yes, of course they have to answer, and they have to answer truthfully. Um, I cannot imagine any criminal case where the attorneys do not ask about past law enforcement experience. It is boilerplate language that you every DA, every state attorney, every every criminal attorney and criminal defense attorney is going to ask. So yes, the juror would have to reveal it. Uh, here we it's go. In almost Should every we... civil jury questionnaire as well. I mean, it's, exactly. it's in every everything everywhere. Yeah. It's on, it's on the lawyers to ask. Uh, yep. So I guess uh, if you're a, if you're a police officer, you don't have to reveal, but the lawyers better be asking you, uh, Allie from Tennessee. My question is if you're on the jury for, let's say Charlie or even Donna, wouldn't it be hard if you weren't aware of the entire history of the trial, it's quite a doozy. Uh, Peter, the lawyer, you know, what about that? I mean, this this case goes on for nine plus years. The tentacles seem to lead everywhere. How tough is it? And then we get Richard's take on this. But how tough is it to absorb all this information? I, mean, I got lost, which is not saying a lot, uh, but I got lost during um, some of the openings uh, from um, Daniel Rashbaum. I was like, what, where's he going? What's he talking about? Well, again, and this is this is up to the state attorney. I mean, they, they've got to do the job to present the case so the jury understands it. If the jury doesn't understand it and there's confusion and gray areas, that's usually good for the defense. But from my perspective, one of the reasons they were successful in these prosecutions is the story makes sense. Um, you have a, a bitter, horrible, sad divorce that gets nasty in court and it ends the worst way possible that a lot of people fear um, these kind of struggles and problems could end in. So, I mean, it, it does track as wild as the story is and the twists and turns at the end of the day, it's kind of a straight line as to where um, the perpetrator comes from in this story and in the line. I, I like the the train car analogy where, you know, it goes right down the line to the people that have the biggest beef with Dan are the ones calling the shots at the end. Uh, Terry Shulman, Peter show is fantastic. His analysis spot on. Make sure you're checking out the lore, you know, uh, on YouTube, Richard, are you surprised? Because I am, we have not heard, a word from any of the Charlie Adelson jurors. It's been a few weeks. You surprised by that? A little bit. I mean, in a high profile trial, typically one or two do come forward, especially if there's a conviction. You know, when I was working on the Casey Anthony case, when you have an acquittal in a high profile case like that, and it goes completely against public opinion, those jurors usually want to receive into the you know, woodwork. They, they do not want to be exposed, especially when they're getting death threats and things like that. But when you have a conviction like this, typically you do have one or two. But that being said, these trials are so stressful uh, for jurors. And sometimes they do just want to put it behind them. Um, sometimes it's contentious. They also realize that the defense sometimes can come back and analyze whatever they say in interviews and ask for uh, perhaps a misconduct or ask for a new trial as a result of statements like that. So sometimes they even make agreements in the deliberation room. Are we going to talk to the press or aren't we? And even though each of them can afterwards, sometimes they actually just say, let's be radio silent. Let's go back to our lives. We don't want the hassle and the constant uses of, of, of the press coming after us. And that's what I think probably what happened here. Um, Ruthless is our new friend from uh, the UK with that beautiful accent. Uh, Dave, she had a question before. I'm giving you all the hard questions tonight. She simply asked, is Wendy going to flee? What's your gut instinct tell you about that? No, no. She's got two kids. Uh, she's got her father where uh, I think that if any of them tried 
to get out of Dodge, I think they would meet the same fate as Don. I think people would have eyes on them that maybe then they could find a quick charge to keep them in the country. I don't think they'll, uh, and if they did leave, talk about consciousness of guilt. Uh, also, she has to give up everything. It's not so easy just to move your kids, move your life to another country and then stick there for the rest of your lives. I mean, the extradition process can be messy for prosecutors, but it's not so easy. Remember, Donna knew that she was likely in the prosecutor's crosshairs, and she didn't leave until the very last moment when, when her son had been convicted, when it looked like she was just about to be next, then she took off. I don't see that happening yet for Wendy or Harvey. As uh, I think it was Rich who said, what the prosecutors are going to do here is they're going to continue shaking the tree. They're going to now, you know, they started with the two hitmen, and then they went to Katie, and then they went to Charlie, and now they're at Donna. And if they convict Donna, which I think they will, I think they're going to turn their eyes to Harvey and Wendy. Wow. And I want to dig into that a little bit um, deeper. Uh, there's a comment here. Hi, I'm new here. Good morning from Malaysia. Look at this. Breakfast with STS. It is the future. Our show is the future. It is the next day there. Dave Richard and the one and only our boy, the lawyer you know, Peter Tragos, never Brett better. There you go. From Azam Nuraza. Jumberry. She's, she's a staple. She's a staple in the lawyer you know chat. Staple. There you go. You gotta yeah. love that. Coming did Peter did Peter advertise he was gonna be on the show? I did. I cheated. I had to. I'm, I'm trying to help Joel out too, man. I'm saying, no, hey, come check me out help. tonight. I did a video this morning. It's like, come check it out tonight. Come hang out with the boys. And oh, I, I love it, dude. I owe you for that uh, for <laughs> sure. So, Richard, I know you have to get going in a second. Yeah. This this mystified me on the on the stupidity scale. So, Donna tries to take off. She buys this ticket the day after Charlie's conviction. Plans to leave the day before the grand jury convenes. And um, they buy a one-way ticket to Dubai uh, to try to get to Vietnam. Dave was just talking about consciousness of guilt. If this goes to trial, what's a jury going to think when they see that they bought a one-way ticket? And, and had all the money. They could have flown private, these people. What are they thinking? I think they're going to think it's consciousness of guilt. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's very tough. I mean, when you... You know, but let's face it, people do desperate things. They do stupid things with this, and they sometimes aren't thinking clearly about this stuff. And they know they've got a tough thing. So, I mean, it's, I mean, I think a jury, unless they come up with some explanation about this, I've got business and I was wanted to be, I mean, Peter talked about this. When you're on the defense side, and believe me, I've done enough criminal defense work to realize sometimes you just have terrible facts in the case and you just have to do something. And, and the, because the jurors, even though the, the real truth in criminal cases is that the burden of proof is actually on the defendant. We talk about it as terms of burden of proof being on the prosecution of the case. But intuitively, jurors want to know, you've been accused. Show me, tell me, talk to me about why you didn't do this. So there's always an explanation. So even though criminal defense attorneys try their best to to have this sort of to kind of whittle away at all the prosecution's thing and trying to create this reasonable doubt jurors really want to know well if you didn't do it what did happen what is your participation here and you know when you buy a ticket like that that feeds a particular narrative so the truth is in any criminal case there is somewhat of a burden 
on the defendant to always provide an explanation. You got to come up with one. Mm. Richard, you know, I want you to stay, but I think you've got to get on the road. You've got a trial, yeah, right? Okay. Yeah, I got a, I, got a jury selection tomorrow. So I appreciate okay. it as always, Joel, you inviting me on the show. Really great meeting you two guys as well. Uh, always a great time talking about we're, these things. We're going to have you back soon, Richard. I promise you that. Thank you Good so much. You, have Richard. a safe trip. Have a safe trip. Um, this is an interesting question. If Wendy ever goes to trial, uh, Peter, would a female or male prosecutor make a difference? We know, obviously, Georgia Kaplman is uh, the pit bull, if you will, of prosecutors up in Tallahassee. In your view, does it make a difference? I mean, usually they would say a female prosecutor. I think the research would show would um, be a better look and the jury would not think. So, so some of the research that we found is Sometimes male prosecutors cross-examining female defendants if she was to testify. I would think she was testified since she's already testified so many times um, in her own defense that sometimes it can come off as the male attorney being too aggressive or mean or things like that. And jurors usually like the view of a female prosecutor cross-examining her. I think that really depends on the juror. If you want my opinion, I've seen it go both ways. Um, I, I think he would have a better answer on this than I on what the strategy is. And when you have a male defendant versus female defendant. Here we go. Um, Isagul Aksu from Turkey. Hello, Peter. So happy to see you here. Ole. Hello to uh, Dave and Richard, too. But I'm a very. Yes, oh, Dave, Dave, Dave was left out there by yes, accident. <laughs> I was trying to gloss over that real quickly. Uh, anyway, she's a, she's a fan of. Uh, she's a huge fan of yours, Dave. Yes. Uh, Dave, I, look, at, look at this. I've been following you longer, Dave, since Core TV with Vinny. They got to go to the. Um, old digital media there, whatever, analog, whatever it is, uh, the old Thank media. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much. She's made my night. Yeah. Uh, Cindy, uh, Cindy Collins says, I live a half mile from Trescott Drive. It's no shortcut. Talking about um, Wendy Adelson. Um, hi, Ann, watching from Scotland. So back to this Miami Herald um, story to you, Peter. So just a weird article. Uh, you know, I live in Miami, haven't seen um, pretty much any reporting on this. Then again, nine and a half years later, you know, there's bits and pieces. You see this big um, kind of profile and this guy, Ben Graber, former legislature, le legislator and uh, gynecologist. Um, he comes out and he says about Donna, her driving goal was to raise her kids to be academic achievers, humanitarians and upstanding citizens. I think uh, he she probably failed at the upstanding citizens part. Um, this, again, is the photo from that article. But he goes on and says, I've been watching this from afar and waiting for someone to speak up. Finally, I felt I had to say something. This is just impossible. They never would have done this. What's your reaction to hearing this? Was it was that to me? Yeah, to you. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. None of this stuff really surprised me about somebody coming out, talking about the family, what they wanted for their kids, um, how it turned out. I don't think it's all the parents' fault, and it's probably not none of the parents' fault. And how it really turns out to me is depending on circumstances and a lot of things. But in this case, I think that by most people's viewpoints, it would look like they had very successful children and were very good parents. Um, and sometimes people that look like they're very good people from the outside maybe aren't. 100% true. You never know what's lurking uh, behind closed doors. Dave Arenberg from Jason Truth, a friend of the show, loving this video, brilliant intellectual guest, talking about how smart you are, Dave. Now, seriously, guys, when is the state, the prosecution, that's you, Dave Arenberg, going to arrest Wendy? 
just the TV code alone about the repairman should be enough to convict her. Dave, what what are your thoughts here? Is, is Georgia um, on a roll here? Um, are they moving more quickly? Do you think they're going to move to to indict Wendy sooner than later? Prosecutors have a lot of discretion, Joel, as to how they're going to approach these things. Some offices would just arrest them all, get them all arrested, and, and start prosecuting them all at the same time. This was uh, a piece-by-piece piece prosecution, and because I don't think they had enough evidence at the beginning to go after Katie, and so they first went after Sigfredo, Tato, and Tuto, and then they went after Katie, and then after they got the Dulce Vida recording clarified, they were able to go after Charlie, and I think they were waiting to see if they could get Charlie. If Charlie had been found not guilty, they would not have prosecuted Donna. The case would be over. But they got the quick conviction of Charlie. That meant that Donna's days were numbered. And if and when they convict Donna, that's when they're going to go after Harvey and or Wendy. I don't think this case is over after a conviction. But if they somehow lose the case against Donna, yeah, then I think it's over. But don't do not expect Wendy or Harvey to be prosecuted until... Donna gets convicted. Uh, Lita Randolph, Peter is so right about teaching us all about what to expect as as a potential juror. He rocks. Um, so next week's a huge week once again in the uh, Dan Markell, Charlie Adelson story that seems to take so many twists and turns. On Tuesday, Peter is Charlie's sentencing. Um, it's all but a given that he is going to face the remainder of his natural life in state prison. What what should we or can we expect at this sentencing in terms of formalities, in terms of impact victim statements, things of that nature? Yeah, I, I didn't watch uh, Magbanwa or any of the other sentencing hearings. I would assume um, Dan's mom and dad will probably say something, talk about how much this means and how everybody that is involved should get what they deserve and how justice doesn't stop with just one or two people, but we need full justice. Um, maybe they'll say some kind words about Dan. I, I don't really expect to hear from a ton of victims or people that are associated with the victim in this case, but I would say at least his parents or his mom will say something. Uh, Dave, anything to add to that? No, I mean, he's, he's got a mandatory life sentence, uh, but the victim impact statement, as Peter said, will be really interesting. I, I, I want to hear, uh, what Dan's parents say. I don't expect there to be many uh, voices in favor of Charlie getting anything uh, because he's, it's a mandatory life sentence. And so Donna's not going to be there. Clearly, she's facing her own trial. Harvey wants no part of this. They weren't even there for their own son's murder trial. That tells you everything you need to know about their feeling of their own culpability. They weren't there at all. And Wendy is not going to be there either. She wants out of Dodge. So you're going to see a one-sided, which I like as a prosecutor because he deserves uh, life in prison. And Dan's friends and family deserve their day in court, and they're going to get it in the victim impact statement. And, uh, you know, I talked to Ruth and Phil and Shelly fairly regularly, very happy that they're finally uh, getting justice all these years later. Um, Dave, to you. STS uh, Nation let me know from Linda Ortiz here. She did not know what happened. This is Wendy until Isom told her at the police station during her interview. That seems to be the consensus. So this whole notion of her describing herself as a suspect um, is certainly interesting. Uh, well, it's, no, no, 
yeah, go ahead. Of the puzzle. You know, you if, if that's the case, that will be part of the evidence. You also have the fact that she drove uh, on Trescott, which is not a shortcut, and she drove to a liquor store that was not near her house. She went way out of her way to go to a liquor store when there was one really close to her. She then went on the street and saw the police activity at her ex-husband's house where her kids apparently could have been, and she um, immediately turned around, didn't call anyone, didn't check into anything. And yeah, I mean, what was that text message where she cryptically said, you're the greatest to the brother when she apparently found out what Charlie was up to? I love you, or that was so nice of you to do this for me, something up to that effect. Uh, yeah. So uh, there, there are a bunch of bits of information of evidence that's mounting against Wendy. And will it be enough for prosecutors to charge her? The question is whether prosecutors will believe they could get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. This is not the same as the police standard of probable cause. Prosecutors want more than probable cause to move forward. We want beyond a reasonable doubt, at least the belief in good faith that we can get a conviction. And that, and that's a huge distinction. Uh, Peter, to you, one of the really interesting things that came out of this uh, media-wise is uh, in the week between Charlie's conviction and Donna's ultimate arrest, they spoke for 35 hours. It was more than five hours a day. Uh, what in the world would you say to your client uh, if he was sitting in a county jail about talking on the phone that much? And how detrimental is this going to be to them, uh, to Donna especially, moving forward? Well, yeah, if, I'm, if I represent Donna, that would have been a huge no-no and mistake. At this point, Charlie's probably pretty bummed and realizes his fate. And, you know, they may have some appellate issues to go for. But at this point, Charlie's probably like, forget it. I'm not listening to you anymore. I'll do whatever I want. I'm probably sitting in prison the rest of my life. But from Donna's perspective, to not come to the trial, to totally stay away and stay out of it, as the family was apparently instructed by all of their different attorneys, it was a catastrophic mistake, would be my guess, for people to speak that long on recorded lines after the code and all of the stuff they got caught up in with recordings before being on camera, being having phone recordings and how that ultimately probably led to Charlie's conviction. And I think is the strongest evidence against Donna to give them 30 plus hours of new material to comb through and see what they can use against Donna Adelson going forward. I mean, I'm shocked by that. I was really shocked by that. And you always, Dave, you always say that a prosecutor spends half his day listening to jail calls, right? Yeah. And Jason McIntosh, when he was working for me, he used to spend a lot of time <laughs> listening to jail calls. And this is not drudgery work. People like this because it's salacious. You get to hear some really incriminating things. And this is why I said that this prosecution team, Georgia Kaplan, who is outstanding, and my friend Jack Campbell doing a great job by going piecemeal, one after the next, after the next, look, look what they're getting. Once Charlie was convicted. Now you've got this amazing treasure trove of calls of evidence against Donna that you would never have had if you had arrested them all together. Look at this lawyer, you know, his family's in the house. That's because he told us he made a video and I'm very happy to have you and hope that you give STS a shot. Come join us to party five nights a week here, even though we're talking about uh, serious issues. We've got the best guests in all of true crime. And that is why we've got Peter Tragos on the show, along with Dave Ehrenberg. Um, so, Peter, that's not it. Uh, Tuesday, it's a it's a double whammy, as they say. You've got Charlie's sentencing at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. But at 8.45 a.m. is Donna's next court appearance. Uh, what's going to happen there? She's had her first appearance. 
We've seen a new mugshot. She's sitting in that Leon County jail. What will transpire on that morning? I don't know. It could just be a pretrial where they're kicking it out. I don't know if they've done any request for a bond or anything like that. I don't think they would give it to her. Charges are serious, and she was literally picked up at the airport. That's a pretty tough argument against uh, that she may or may not flee. Um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen. Most likely in these cases, they're kicking the can down the road with the first couple hearings. Um, but if I could, I, I just, yeah. not to throw cold water, but I just have a question, and I want to throw it out there as far as Wendy goes, because I, I listened back once Donna got arrested to the closing argument by the prosecutor in Charlie Adelson's trial, and it could have been a closing argument in Donna Adelson's trial. They have so much evidence against her, so much similar evidence to what they had against Charlie. The train car analogy plays the same. The recordings, the phone calls, the text messages, the emails were even worse for Donna Adelson as far as motive. Um, and, and Charlie at least had the argument. He didn't care what happened in his sister's marriage or his sister's life, which I think was at least plausible. Donna doesn't have that argument. Um, the motion to not allow the mother-in-law to have unsupervised visit with the kids. I mean, all piling up on Donna, tons of evidence against Donna. But when you take it a step further to Wendy, we didn't hear a lot about Wendy's involvement in any of these trials. There's not a lot of text messages, recorded phone calls, um, undercover shakedowns with Wendy Adelson. So I think the case against Wendy Adelson becomes even more circumstantial, even more dot connecting, even more inference jumping or stacking to me. And I'm just saying, if, if I'm a criminal defense attorney involved in this case, I think Wendy Adelson and even Harvey are more insulated than Charlie and Donna who really got their hands dirty. Not to say they didn't have a part in all of this, but I absolutely think those two would be much harder to prove, in my opinion, beyond a reasonable doubt, outside what I said in the beginning, which was, this story just makes sense. The Adelson family all got together, they conspired, and they took the hit out on Dan. Um, but Dave, I'm interested in what you think. Don't you think it's a considerably harder case to prove for a prosecutor for Wendy and Harvey? Without a doubt. Uh, Peter, you make great points, but it's not impossible because you have to prove the conspiracy. That's a way to get at Wendy and Harvey. And a conspiracy, as you know, is just, it's an agreement between two or more people and you need an overt act, but not everyone has to perform the overt act. Mm -hmm. All it takes is one person in the conspiracy to perform an overt act. Here, there are a lot of overt acts, and then everyone goes down for it. So if Wendy agreed to the conspiracy, if Harvey agreed to it, and some evidence against Harvey is the original recording. Remember, the Dolce Vita tape is not the first recording. First, Charlie was with his father, and there was apparently some perhaps incriminating things there showing Harvey's knowledge. Also, we don't know what's on those many hours of jail tapes with Don. Did she spill sure. the beans about the family conspiracy? And we'll see what happens at Donna's trial. If it goes to trial, you may get more evidence against Wendy. But I agree with you. The reason why they haven't prosecuted Wendy or Harvey is because they are the toughest nuts to crack at this point. Yeah. Uh, Yala says, look at this, Dave. Dave has a nice smile. He seems too nice to be in politics. Too sane. <laughs> um, it's probably Thank inaccurate. You, uh, will there be a no-fly restriction on Wendy and Harvey? tell you what i've gotten uh some really interesting people reaching out to me and uh it seems let's put it this way it seems like there are eyes on wendy and harvey as we speak uh people keeping tabs on uh, the two of them real quickly uh just quick programming note tomorrow night there are two high profile unsolved cases in detroit dr devin hoover 
an openly gay neurosurgeon was murdered in his attic of his beautiful mansion. And then you've got Samantha Wool, W-L-L, who, W-O-L-L-L, W-O-L-L, who was president of her synagogue. They arrested someone. Police have been very tight-lipped, said they had their suspect, and then released him. So tomorrow night, we've got the former Detroit police chief on along with a uh, doctor detective troy looney so don't miss that it's gonna be really fascinating and then wednesday night we've got um divorce etc it's a divorce podcast they are experts on divorce and we're going to talk about why this divorce was deadly along with shanna gardner and jared bridegan so that is wednesday night just a quick programming note uh peter to you um, one of the curveballs or caveats to what you and Dave were just talking about, that it's a harder case, is the fact that they have just seized Donna Adelson's cell phone and Harvey Adelson's cell phone. What are going on? What's going on with those two cell phones right now? Could that potentially blow this case wide open if Wendy is saying incriminating things or if Harvey is doing that? Sure, I think that's possible, but I mean... If Wendy was really involved in the train car analogy, I don't see why she would be left out. It would just make more sense if the person they were actually doing this for and helping was involved when you're trying to convict Charlie or trying to convict Donna. Um, they, of course, could find new incriminating information. I think, I think hasn't Wendy already turned over her phone or they've had other opportunities to see Wendy's text messages and emails? Um, I don't know that there's going to be anything necessarily more incriminating as to what they already have. Again, I think inference is going to be the biggest chip that they have, unless, of course, these jail calls really do spill the beans and are some new information that they can use. But I think, I think taking on so now to say that Charlie Adelson's been convicted and Donna Adelson's been convicted and Sigfredo's been convicted and Catherine Rabanoa, and you have all this that you can tell the jury that all these people have been convicted. They're obviously connected to Wendy Adelson. That sure helps. But I don't know. I think they did a good job of insulating her regardless of if she was involved or not. Uh, Dave Arenberg, Farrow Gamma, simple but uh, poignant question. Dan Markell was murdered in July 2014. Your friend, why hasn't the ex-wife, Wendy, been charged up to now, 2023? And uh, I'll couple it with this question, Dave, from Sarah Fernley. Joel asks uh, the 3,000 more than that now in the live chat. How many of them felt that Wendy was complicit the first time they watched the five-hour interview, put a one in the chat if you think she's complicit. But Dave, um, what do you make of any of this? Prosecutors do not charge based on probable cause. That's a lower burden that cops use to make an arrest. Prosecutors charge if they feel they've got enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, in this case, at the beginning, the cops actually wrote up a, a, a probable cause affidavit to charge the Adelson family. I don't believe Wendy was included in that, but it, but Donna, I believe Harvey was included in that. And it was the prosecutor, the state attorney there said, no, 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 we don't have enough evidence. So it's taken nine years to get to this point. And Peter makes a good point. Wendy's trial, if there is a trial, they'll be able to say, look at all these other people who've been convicted. So duh. <laughs> and that's really what a lot of people are thinking, but you have to have evidence. Another piece of evidence that I left out that one of your viewers uh, mentioned is the TV. Why are they all talking in code? Wendy was talking in code too. So that tells me that perhaps she was in on the conspiracy. I mean, it was all about the TV and getting the TV fixed. And then what was the gift for Harvey's 70th birthday? It's a big birthday. No one can remember it other than maybe some paella. 
Uh, so there's a lot of things that it looks very fishy, but to put a, a bow on this, as Peter said, this is largely a circumstantial case. A lot of inferences for Wendy and prosecutors hate reasonable doubt and they hate inferences if you can avoid them. But that may be all I've got. Uh, Peter, I'm curious, you know, uh, there are reports right now about Donna sitting in her Leon County jail cell that she's not eating and she's just doing curious things. She's singing out loud. She's naked sometimes. Um, odd behavior. Do you think that there's any chance she's making some ploy for some sort of, you know, either insanity or is she actually losing her mind in there? And as a an attorney, if you were representing her, what would you be telling her right now? None of this is corroborated, but these are all, you know, kind of rumors and innuendo swirling around. So it's not unusual when clients get arrested for very serious crimes like this, for things to go a little wonky, for them to be on suicide watch, for them to take certain things away from clients during this period of time. But an insanity defense in Florida would not go a long way with how she's acting now because it only takes into account, you know, her mindset and sanity at the time she was committing the crime. So really all she'd have going for her now would be incompetence. And if you're representing her and she's not competent to stand trial or participate in her defense, there's not really much you can tell her um, or do with her, but it could put a stay on the proceedings, which I'm not sure how that helps her. Uh, going on suicide watch, I've had clients who think that's going to be a good idea in the past, and they realize very quickly that's a horrible idea. Um, you do not want to be in that part of the jail, um, mm -hmm. at least in Pinellas and Pasco County. Explain and why. So, I mean, Explain why. Why don't you want to be in that part of the jail? So when there are people that are legitimately in that part of the prison, they are screaming all night taking mm. off all of their clothes, wearing paper clothing. It's freezing. Um, mm. You don't get the same interaction with your attorneys and you don't get the same um, access to the commissary. It's, it's not great. It's not, not where you want to be. Peter, let me ask you a question. Your dad is a criminal defense attorney. You're a level-headed guy. You're smart. You're good looking. Are you, are you scared of prison, Peter? Would you be scared? I, I always to to say prison? that. I'm like, people say, oh, it's only, uh, a year or, you know, they're sitting in prison for a couple of days. And I'm like, I don't want to be in prison for three seconds. When I, I practiced more criminal defense earlier in my career. And when we would go to the jail, I was always, and my dad would always make, you know, the joke. It's like, it's a great thing to hear that noise. Cause we know we're going to hear it again on the way out when they, you know, are closing the doors and stuff. And it's, it's a miserable place to be. I wouldn't want to be there for five minutes, let alone five days, five years, or however long it's going to take for this case to get to trial. I'm uh, terrified of prison. Never want to end up there. Um, hope I never do. Abby, ta ha ha friend of the show. Super sticker. Thank you. Um, my first two YouTube memberships. So exciting to see you both. It's very romantic. Thank you, Elf. I appreciate that. Someone should, ma should make a meme of Peter and I walking into the sunset, holding hands. The first <laughs> podcast. Um, I would love that. Uh, Miss Miss Brazy 604 Dave, you're very informative. Look at this, Dave. I think they're feeling bad, um, you know, so now they're going with Thank your you, – they're building up your brain here, and I love it. Um, what I'll say about Dave is – and I don't know Dave. I've never met him before today, <laughs> but having like an actual sitting state attorney and somebody been in that position is pretty cool to pick their brain. They make a lot of decisions. My dad, Dave, was the chief assistant, uh, chief of the criminal division here in the middle district um, for the U.S. attorney's office back in the day. And it's like when you have the person that's calling the shots on who's getting prosecuted, who's handling the case, get some good insight that that you don't normally get from your average lawyer. So that is cool. Yeah, Dave, Dave is uh, Dave's a big deal. He's a big cheese. By the way, Peter, what's the hey. best advice your 
attorney father ever gave you when it came to the law? Gosh, that's a good question. I mean, I think kind of our motto was we do everything um, ethically and morally possible to get the best result for you. And I think that uh, making sure morals and ethics are at the forefront of everything we do as attorneys, because it's easy to go sideways and opportunities arise for greed to take over. And we see it with Murdoch and Girardi and some of these lawyers. Um, so that, that I think was just having that be our kind of mission statement and motto from the day I started, um, was important. And he also has always taught me to do what I enjoy doing because being a lawyer can be tough. It can be a grind and you can be miserable and you can burn out. Um, and I focused on what I really like doing and he provided me a lot of opportunities to do that. So I'm thankful for those two pieces. That's a good dad and a good son. Uh, Dave, to you, since Don and Charlie are going to be in court the same day, would they be allowed to see slash speak to each other? No chance, right? Nope. No chance. And, uh, uh, and they shouldn't. Uh, they had plenty of time. They had hours and hours on jail calls beforehand. Enough is enough, right? Yeah. No, 100%. Um and they will go out of their way to keep them separate. Sarah Fernley here for you, Peter. Uh, what do you make of all these cascading search warrants and how do they justify a warrant for Harvey's iPad? Sounds promising. So there was a seizure of some of Harvey's electronics. Um, legally, I'm curious how that is done since I'm not an attorney and they didn't take him into custody. But what's going on there, Peter? So, I mean, this is anything that they feel like they have probable cause to find um, evidence that proves the crime that they've charged, assuming Donna is what it's in connection with. I haven't seen this search warrant that they're mentioning, but if they can find evidence of the crimes they've charged Donna with on Harvey's iPad, then they would be able to get that um, based on the rules in Florida. Uh, Dave, you and I talked about this before. Um, this is a little bit off the beaten path, but I had former inmates on used to call them ex-cons, and then uh, I'm not allowed to do that. I have to call them former inmates, and I respect that. They have done their time. Uh, but they all collectively, collectively, they say that there's no way that if Donna, you know, goes to trial, that members of the Adelson family are not going to start to turn on each other. Do you think that Charlie harbors some sort of animus or animosity towards Wendy and do you think there's a chance that for some sort of deal that someone like you would offer, he might throw her under the bus? I think there is a chance, especially when someone for the first time is incarcerated and is going to be there for the rest of his life. And he finally realizes that, that he decides to do something he wouldn't have done before. And that is to turn on a family member. And if there was any family member he would turn on, it would be Wendy because it was Wendy who suggested that maybe her brother committed this crime during the, the police interview. She was pretty quick to talk about the joke that he made about hiring a hitman. So he admitted also at trial that he sometimes had felt uh, negatively about his sister, that you know he was doing all the work and uh, you know she wasn't uh, appreciative of him. There was some he had acknowledged that at trial. And so, yeah, I think it's an outside chance. I think there's a 0% chance that he turns on his mom or his mom turns on him, uh, <laughs> tries to blame him. I think that they're going to go their separate ways. I do think there's also a very outside chance that that Donna could turn on Harvey, although there's some marital privilege and other issues there. Uh, but yes, I think if anything, I think Charlie to save his own hide because he's a selfish guy that he perhaps will turn on Wendy. And with that, I, I, I want to thank you, uh, Joel, for having me on the show, and Steve, and also Peter. It's uh, it's been great. I'm sorry that I can't stay much longer, but 
Um, I'm going to be uh, subscribing also to Peter's channel now. And and uh, if I can go plug for my own fledgling YouTube channel, uh, it's Florida Lawman, but I'm under Dave Ehrenberg FL. And I, uh, I give insights into some of these uh, national legal matters. Well, Dave, when you get back here in a year, you'll have double what Peter and I have combined. So uh, wishing you the best. I'm going to connect uh, with Peter's permission. I'm going to connect you two because sure. uh, Peter, Peter's obviously more adept at this than I am. But we're getting there. So um, I will connect you. And I think we should all have lunch in Palm Beach one day with uh, your buddy and Dave. And we'll be uh, Peter. It'll be, it'll be like we'll be like celebrities in Palm Beach. It'll be great. Maybe exactly. Donald Trump will come. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Um <laughs> Dave and Donald Trump at the same table. That'd be interesting. <laughs> Got to get politics out of it. You <laughs> won't find me there. <laughs> Dave, you're a gentleman and a scholar, as my mom uh, says. Peter, can you hang on a few more minutes? Yeah, I got about 10 more minutes. Okay, awesome. Thanks. Uh, Dave, pleasure. See you later. Um, thanks, Peter. So we'll just fire through some questions here. Um, so in this article, this question was for Dave. I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, basically, this family friend comes out and says that Charlie had this in him. So the question is, is it a hint of what Donna's defense will be? Will she throw Charlie under the prison bus? I just asked Dave that question. Who do you think could flip on who? I just don't see them flipping on each other because they both lose if that happens, unless they offer some kind of deal that's too good to be true. But at Donna's age and Harvey's age, I don't see how it help, helps them to even take a deal. And especially making sure your son is in prison for the rest of his life on your way out. I just I don't really see if a family that's willing to do this for each other. I can't see them ending with that. And, you know, Peter, you said something interesting. It's like we never know what's really going on with people behind closed doors. Um, and you said that nothing really surprises you. But like, what, what's your gut tell you about this family? Do you feel because uh, this question comes up to me all the time and I imagine you get it. Do you feel that they were all in on it, that they were all part of this you know grand conspiracy to rid the world of dan markell which sadly they succeeded at but now they're finally getting their comeuppance here so i think like a lot of things in life something that starts out good or pure or that you believe in can get twisted and become evil very quickly and i think that they probably felt like in their heart of hearts if you could hook them up to a lie detector test that they needed to get wendy and the kids away from dan markell um at whatever cost whether it's money, whether it's stealing the kids, whether it's manipulation, whether it's court documents and filings to say and do whatever you can. And eventually the ball kept rolling down the hill until, the, until there were no lines that couldn't be crossed um, where crime started becoming in play. And then to commit the ultimate crime against Dan Markell, they justify it because they think it's for a good cause or it's for the right result for the kids or for the family. And at the end of the day, that's just people being selfish doing what they want to do, not caring about the rules, not caring about anybody else, um, not caring about Dan Markell, not actually caring about the kids if they thought about it um, and what it would mean for them to lose their father at this age or at the age that they did lose him. And I think that's probably what it tumbled into. It probably wasn't the first thought when they thought, how are we going to get the kids away from Dan Markell? But unfortunately, that's where it ended up. Um, so we did a show on this issue of perjury with Wendy. We went through a bunch of examples. Uh, one of them is that she never told this hitman joke um, or, or the story. And you have Jeff LaCasse on the stand saying that she she said it to him in a serious manner. How tough is it to prosecute uh, perjury? Is that a possible option here? Just no way. 
I would say it's a possible option here because at times if they feel like somebody's guilty of a crime that they can't prove, but they feel like perjury is easier to prove, that's the, the time it's most likely because it's so difficult to prosecute. It's so frustrating in depositions or on the stand when people are blatantly lying under oath and I'm throwing my hands up. Like they obviously don't care about perjury. They know they're not going to get prosecuted for it. They know they're not going to go to prison for up to five years, which you easily can in Florida um, since it can be a third degree felony. So it's, it's really frustrating that people just don't actually respect that law or tell the truth, even if they're under oath, but it's very unusual for, for someone to get prosecuted for perjury, unless they think there's something more that they might not have enough evidence to prove. Uh, we're also, you know, we're working and hopefully we will get, uh, the defense attorney from this trial, from Charlie's trial, Daniel Rashbaum. I always say this very good guy came up to me at the trial, did not have any reason to, he had a very difficult case. What do you think? You talked I thought about he did a, little... a good job. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what do you think? I, I thought he did a good job. I thought he fought for his client. I thought he was really confident. I think sometimes lawyers lose cases and, and I see it a lot in civil cases when it's clear they don't believe in their case. Um, and if you're not convincing yourself and you don't believe in your case, it's going to be really hard to convince six to 12 people that don't know you and don't know your client. Um, like I said, I think it was tough factually to go the route that he went, but I thought at the end of the day, they at least came up with something plausible and possible, even if it wasn't the, the best choice or the best explanation or the explanation that the jury agreed with. I thought he did a good job though. I thought he knew the case. I thought he prepared Charlie Adelson for direct and cross-examination extremely well. Um, and I think at the end of the day, the jury just thought his client did it based on the evidence presented by the state. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the other kind of talking points that came up, we've got a regular guest named Tim Jansen, who's a Tallahassee based defense attorney. And, um, you know, he brought in Daniel Rashbaum, who's from Miami. They brought in, um, a jury consultant, very high profile, Josh Dubin from New York city. You think that worked against them? Do you have to, you know, kind of know who you're playing to? I mean, you, you were in law school up in Tallahassee and, uh, look at this came to support Peter. And I'm so glad I did such a great stream. Thank you. Love AED. I hope you'll, uh, come back and check us out even when Peter is not here. Uh, but what about that? Um, Peter, what about, you know, kind of knowing who you're playing to, uh, would they have benefited from a local Tallahassee attorney? So it's interesting. I mean, there are different, um, philosophies behind that. We've used jury consultants in some trials. We haven't used them in others. A lot of times I don't use them to read the jury, to read the people specifically, but instead as like data analysis and gathering and, um, that type of information can be more useful to me as a jury consultant or agency that does things like that. Um, I definitely think New York to Tallahassee is a pretty big difference. Um, it's also, you know, some South Florida mixed in there as well. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it, it depends on what he used the jury consultant for. I will also say criminal defense cases are hard. That's why most of the time criminal defense attorneys lose, um, especially in federal court. So a jury, you can't really blame it on um, the jury consultant, I don't think. One thing that's funny about Tim Jansen, I saw he was on another day and that he was maybe going to be on um, tonight. And that name stuck in my head and I was trying to remember why. And I remember because he represented Jameis Winston, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, And he did. that's why I was like, that's where I knew that name from when I saw him um, on your yeah. show. So I was going to I was going to throw that out tonight if he was going to be on. So that's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, d he did represent Jameis. Um, this is obviously a very involved question, but just in a nutshell, um, is Donna, they want to know what Donna's defense is likely to be. Um, if, if, if it does go to trial, how, you know, pigeonholed in is she because of Charlie's defense? 
I mean, she doesn't have to use the same defense, but I do think it could be along the same lines that she was in the dark. She didn't know what was going on. <clears throat> uh, that explains why when they did the bump, she was like, oh, Charlie, this must be another one of the guys that's extorting you. I mean, I think it would make sense for her to try a similar defense as opposed to go a completely different direction. Um, but I, I don't really know enough about her case and the evidence against her besides what came out in Charlie's trial, but it's going to be hard to defend against all of that. And then also just imagine if Charlie, because one of the main arguments for Charlie was he flew out of the country multiple times to uh, countries where it would have been difficult to extradite him. And he came back because he didn't do anything. Well, Donna's not going to have that argument. Um, that's for sure. So, I mean, I, I do think she's got some more evidence stacked against her afterwards. It's going to be very difficult to deal with, probably more on those jail calls as well. Uh, Donna Bowen, will Donna make it to trial? That's uh, one question. And the other question I have for you, is there any chance that she pleads out here? Um, I don't know what kind of deal she can get. She's 73, so even if she takes 10 years. But what, what do you think here? I mean, I think there's always a chance. Uh, I would think the prosecutors and the Markells would want her to uh, admit her part in the conspiracy at the very least. Um, I'm not sure there would obviously be no visitation or any ability to have a role in the life of her grandkids. Um, so, I mean, it, it'd be hard for me to see a plea deal working out in this case, but it's possible. I mean, she is older. It could be grueling to make it to trial. Um, so, I mean, there's just a lot of factors we don't know about um, that would result in this answer. Look at this, Sheila, court reporter, just a few more subs. Let's get the lawyer you know to 300,000. Someone's telling me in the chat he picked up a 1,000 during this show. That That's a way to do it, STS. Uh, awesome. We help each other. Yeah, we help each other. As Steve Cohen, our fearless producer, says, a rising tide lifts oh, yeah. all ships. Yeah, so I'm all about that. We're going to get Peter back on here. My last question is, what is in the water in Florida, Peter? Because now we've got this case out of Jacksonville with Shanna Gardner accused of murdering in a very similar way her ex-husband, Jared Bridegan. Are you following that case at all? Are you intrigued by it? Well, give me give me the tagline of the case. The names he's, aren't so he's a, he's he's a Microsoft executive. Yes. Yeah, okay. and he was uh, removing a tire, gets shot and killed, hired a hitman, very much like uh, the Adelsons, um, who was a uh, African-American man from a mar marginalized background, very similar to Sigfredo and Luis in that way. Uh, Shanna Gardner's family reportedly earned something like $100 million a year from their company. Um, it's interesting, a lot of comparisons there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of cases in Florida. I mean, tons of cases. Every week, it seems like a new one pops up, whether it's a trial, sentencing, a new case coming where there's an investigation. We'll see, we'll have to follow it. I mean. There was a lot of police work done in this case, the Adelson case. It took nine years to put it all together and we're still not done. Um, so I think only time will tell what the connections are in that case. I don't like to jump to conclusions without actually, you know, looking through some of the stuff specifically that comes out that I feel confident is real or will come out at trial. So that's why I really enjoy watching the trials, seeing what has already been scrutinized and passes the reliability check um, for coming in and something that's actually relevant to the case and seeing what it proves. And then, What's really interesting about this is the chat, when we talk about this and they vote on things, I think they're 100% um, picking the verdict in all of these cases that we've watched together at trial. So they get a feel for it. They understand what's presented. And I mean, usually they're coming alongside with, with where the jury falls. And uh, we're going to have, speaking of that, live coverage next week of Donna's uh, hearing and Charlie's sentencing next Tuesday, 8.45 a.m., 
then 2.30 p.m. in the evening. I don't want to pour salt in the wounds, but a few people were asking you how you're taking uh, the FSU football news. Uh, Peter, are you upset about this? It's brutal, man. I don't get what the point is. We, we, <laughs> we have spreads that lose in Vegas every week. We think we know who's going to win, and we're wrong You know, more than half the time. Yet everybody knew Florida State didn't stand a chance, even though nobody could beat us all year. I'm not going to tell you there weren't plenty of times I was sitting on my couch saying, we stink. We're never going to win it all this year. I don't even think we're going to win this game. But, I mean, all the adversity that these kids went through to continue to win and not even – they've earned the right to go get stomped by somebody if that's really what's going to happen because nobody else in a Power 5 conference can beat them. Four top 25 schools, two SEC schools. Um, huge offenses couldn't put up 30 points against us. And, you know, the last couple of weeks, nobody could score on us, period. So, I mean, I think – I feel bad for the players, man. It really sucks. That's like the pinnacle. A lot of them came back for fourth or fifth seasons. And it's just brutal to have it taken away. And what do you tell them at the end of the day? But money rules the world. And that's what it came down to. You know, they they went with bigger markets, bigger fan bases, bigger audiences. And and that's why they made the call. And I mean, it sucks, but that's that's life. That's the world. It's not always fair. Yeah, 100% right. You're right about that. Always follow the money. Sinbad says, no, Knowles got cheated. Excellent show tonight. Love SDS, but Peter is one of my original I don't know what that is. DEP five. I should know that's probably a, I don't know what that is, but it's an original, um, go bucks and Knowles. sports are fixed. Conspiracy theories are coming in, but I bet yeah, he is right. It has to do with the money. Oh yeah. Uh, listen, huge shout out to Peter Tragos. As you know, he is the lawyer, you know, please support his channel. We're going to get him to come back on. You're going to come back on for a different story, Peter. Oh yeah, for sure. Love it. Okay. Everyone till next time. Love you, America. Love you, Clearwater, Sarasota. Of course. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.